reading from Hebrews 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, you have no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book is written of me do, I mean, to do your will, O God. Previously state, saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts. And in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is, his flesh, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, We're back again with the word open before us. Uh, Thank you, Mark and David, for reading this morning. Uh, God's Word, Hebrews chapter 10. We're picking up where we left off last week, uh, moving through Hebrews. Hard to believe we're, we're getting near the end of 10, almost into that wonderful, glorious Hebrews 11, and uh, wonderful chapter 12 as well. Really, from, from this point forward, there, there's so many scriptures that we have heard, recited, 
that we'll encounter here in these next several weeks as we conclude uh, Hebrews. So I'm looking forward to that. Before we dive in here this morning, uh, I'm going to ask if you would to join me. Let's go to God and ask his blessing on this word, which is his word this morning. Uh, God, we, we recognize and want to recognize this morning as we begin that you are uh, merciful and gracious, that you are slow to anger. We thank you for that, that you're full of mercy and patience. Uh, you are a faithful and truthful, loving and righteous God. And Father, we perhaps don't rest in those truths about you often enough. I thank you, Lord, this morning for supplying us with your word. And I pray that we would receive it today as it is the word of God, your holy word. I pray that you would penetrate our hearts and minds with this truth. And I pray, in fact, that you would let it settle down into our hands and our feet, that we might walk these words out to the praise and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things. Amen. With a look of disdain, you might recall the scene. The butler. He sends a message to Fräulein Maria as she's entered... The Von Trapp Mansion. And he says, in effect, wait here. And he goes to get the captain. Maria looks around the mansion. You might recall the scene. She walks down the steps and she's curious. And she sees a closed door and she opens that door. And what should her eyes view but this glorious ballroom looked like it hadn't been used in years she's perhaps puzzled as to why such a room would be closed why it would be locked up and you might remember the scene she she begins to to dance as though there was a real ball happening it was going on in real time and she's dancing and there are people around her dancing as well although truthfully there were no other people in the room and she's having a great time, and she's enjoying this opportunity. When who should pop on the scene? Yes, I see the smiles, you know. Captain Von Trapp shows up. Swings open the door. And he sizes her up with his penetrating sea captain gaze. And he goes on to inform Maria that there are certain rooms in this house that are strictly off limits. And he doesn't give in that moment any reasons why, but in essence he's saying this room and others like it in this place keep out. They're off limits. And what's interesting in that particular movie is that even in the abbey where Maria came from, she was not supposed to be going to the mountains, but she did. In the Von Trapp home, she wasn't supposed to make any play clothes for the children, but she did. She wasn't supposed to enter the children into the choir festival, but she did. Strictly forbidden, 
off limits. Tell me, when you see a danger sign, a, a road out up ahead, even a detour, we could probably just take that as well. Do you believe what it says and go another direction? Or are you one who is always questioning these kinds of things? Does a sign like danger stir you up to go check it out? Does strictly forbidden and off limits bubble up a certain curiosity within you or create a welcomed border pointing you safely in another direction? You know, I was thinking about this and I I was thinking, I I went all the way back to Genesis in Genesis chapter 2. You might recall when God placed Adam in the garden and the Lord God commanded the man saying, here's what he said in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, of every tree, of every tree, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. He says you may eat from all these other trees in the garden, Adam. But this one tree you shall not eat from. It's strictly forbidden. It's off limits. And in the goodness of God, he even tells Adam what will happen should he choose to eat from it. And you know, it's, it's off limits, he says. And he says if you eat from it, you're surely going to die. Pretty severe consequence, isn't it? If we look at Hebrews chapter 10, you know, we've spent a lot of times in, in the book of Hebrews seeing how much better life is with Jesus. Amen? Life is better. Can you testify this morning life is better with Jesus? Anybody? Anybody? I hope we can this morning. Life is better with Jesus. We've seen that His way is always better. We've seen he's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. Better than Joshua. Better than the earthly high priests. Better than the First Testament. His one sacrifice for all time is better than the ongoing sacrifices of bulls and goats. His new covenant is better than the old one. His death is better than the death of those animals being described. His blood is better. It's a cleansing and purifying blood. A blood that genuinely forgives sin and has power to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. These are all things we've learned to this point. You see, the Levitical sacrificial system is what the listener of this letter knew. It's important we have a grasp of Not only what's being said, but how what's being said would have landed on the ears of those listening. You see, the Levitical sacrificial system is what the audience he's writing to. It's what they knew. That's what they were living in. His familiarity with the blood-saturated utensils and clothing that accompany the life of sacrifices and offerings in the tabernacle. This is the life that the first century Jew understood. His audience, his immediate audience. 
And as a part of this familiar context, there was one place everyone was strictly forbidden not to enter. Except one man, one time a year. And see, the Jew understood that the veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies, he understood that was off limits. Open that curtain. And to use the words of God to Adam, you shall surely die. You just didn't enter that sacred place. It was strictly forbidden and off limits to all but the high priest. And that only one day of the year. Well, if you haven't done so, open your Bible to Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren... Having boldness to enter the holiest. Whoa, 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 stop right there. The ramifications of what I just read? Large. For the listener, the immediate listener. I'll read it again. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest. You see, to the first century Jew who understood the proper do's and don'ts of the Jewish tabernacle, this sentence would go more like this. Therefore, brethren, having received strict orders to stay away from the holiest. The Jew wouldn't deem it boldness to enter into the holiest. He would see it as a death warrant to do so. And the writer begins verse 19, having just spoken about, in verse 18, having just spoken about the forgiveness available through the Messiah who would bring, and at the time of writing had already brought it, forgiveness of sins under the new covenant. And he says, now there is no longer a need for you to offer sacrifices for sins. No longer necessary. See, something that had once been strictly forbidden to enter has now, according to the text, been opened up. What used to be off limits has been designated limitless. That place that no one dared to enter is now not only open, but it's being promoted as the place to go. It's being heralded as a welcoming place. It's being subscribed to as the abiding place. And so instruction is now needed to help the listener. Are you following this? Instruction is now needed to help the listener. Remember, all of his life, he's grown accustomed to the tabernacle way of living. And now he's confronted with the Christ... And he's shown how following Jesus is deemed a much better way of living. I do believe it's fair to say that the Jewish audience listening to these words were in the midst of a transition. And with transition and change comes a need for instruction. A need for instruction. 
as we think about needing instruction, there are some of us who are sitting here today who maybe like the idea of instruction, but deep down in your heart, you don't like to be taught anything. You've got things figured out. In fact, you've lived your life in such a way that you've not relied on a whole lot of other people around you. You've not relied on much instruction from outside yourself. You've been a self-taught person. You've lived independently. Listen, those to whom he's writing, going through transition, going through change, they were in need of instruction. And so are we. Every single one of us here are in need of instruction from God's word. Amen? I, I, hope, I hope we get that that is a core as kind of a lead in to the text. That's, that's, the, that's the working title. Need for, a need for instruction. That's what they needed. That's what we need. Being instructed by the word of God. We look at the text and we see this instruction that's now needed. And some questions come to mind as we think about transition and change. How now am I to live under this new covenant? You see, we've got to stop for just a moment. We've got to... We gotta, Think about what we're reading because we're 2,000 years removed, aren't we? But this particular letter is being written to a group of people. This was new, truly new. They needed the instruction because they've been so accustomed to living a different way. And with Christ as the great high priest, what, what's called for now and how I operate on a day-to-day basis? So instruction is given. But really the text, as we'll see, the text is calling for faithful obedience and response to that instruction as well. And really if we look at the text here, the, the outline, if you will, the outline is, is 19 through 21, and then 22 through 25 work together. And you know, in, in preparation and working through this, my original intent was to go 19 through 25 today. But uh, as, the, as the end of the week progressed, it, it got to where it was probably going to be a little more lengthy than maybe what you would prefer to take 19 through 25. So we're going to take 19, 20, and 21 today. And this really pains me. For a couple reasons. Well, one primary reason. It pains me to do it this way. You know, I'm an English person, background. And it pains me to stop at 21 because 21, it's, it's right in the middle of a sentence. We're stopping right in the middle of a sentence. Ah! But... I do believe in 19, 20, and 21, there are things that 
that all of us need to have a handle on before we move on to 22 through 25. See, 19 through 21 are going to represent, we're going to talk about some foundational principles, of which we'll speak of two. Two foundational principles uh, that are kind of the basis for the instruction that follows in 22 to 25. Okay? What we'll see in 22 to 25 next week is uh, there are three exhortations. They all are, you can clue those in by let us, right? Let us, let us. There's three of those on how you're to live now under this new covenant. Okay? And implied in those exhortations is obedience and response to the instruction. So today I'd like to look at 19 through 21. They provide for us two primary principles for the instructions that are coming. I want you to notice in the text, that the exhortations in 22 through 25, they come after first establishing foundations for understanding the truth. What one writer calls the glorious indicatives. I love that as a writer and thinking about indicative is a fancy word for fact. Or what we could say, gospel truths. Right? It's having a handle and an understanding of the gospel truths before actually calling... The people to live a certain way. Okay? And really the flow of the passage makes good sense to us. I mean, who here is ready to dart out in obedience if not first given a basic foundation of why this is important? Not not too many of us. We're going to have some questions. Who's prepared to put two feet in and commit to something without first understanding what this is all about? You see, gospel instruction precedes gospel living, friends. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. Faithful living flows out of a settled clarity of who God is and what he's done for you in Christ Jesus. Faithful living is convinced about the truths of the gospel so much so that it manifests the fruit and the evidence of a surrendered life. A life that's lived under the authority of the lordship of Jesus Christ. A life that submits itself to the word, his ways, and sees that he gets all the glory. So upon what basis should you embrace the exhortations to come in verses 22 through 25. I want you to think about that. The text provides us with two, I believe, foundational principles. And the clues are found grammatically in the participle having. Look at verse 19. It's there. Therefore, brethren, having boldness. And it's inferred in verse 21. Some of you, in some of your Bibles, have it in italics. That means it's not there in the original language. It's implied. That verb is it's participle. And it's there in 21. Having a high priest. So I'd like to look at these two foundational principles for our understanding. Foundational principle number one is having boldness to enter the holiest. Having boldness to enter the holiest. This boldness can also be translated confidence. Uh, Elsewhere in the scriptures, it's the word that is translated plainly or openly. But, But oftentimes this word is used... And translated as bold. I was, I was, right, I was, I was reading this week and I came across uh, some, some things from uh, James McDonald in one of his books that uh, was applying to this particular arena of what we're talking about. And he, he gave a definition that kind of was helpful in terms of boldness. 
And I share that with you. He says boldness is a clear, direct communication in the face of potential opposition. It's clear, direct communication in the face of potential opposition. Boldness. And so to the Jew hearing these words, let me ask you a question. Do you think there might be, possibly, do you think there might be any potential opposition while endeavoring to enter the holiest? Having grown up in a culture that shouted, it's off limits to come into the holiest. Strictly forbidden to enter here. Don't you think verse 19 would have just rattled their cages a little bit? I mean, me? Go in there? Think about it. You know, and I think about this boldness and I think about the response initially to these words in verse 19. And it got me thinking about the preached word. You know, standing behind this, this pulpit, this lectern, this, truth be told, lunch counter table. That's what it is. To proclaim God's word. It's a bit fearful to, to enter behind this pulpit, not because the pulpit is somehow sacred or holy in and itself. But because of the task that's entrusted to the preacher. To herald a message not his own. That's the task. As a messenger of the king, I am entrusted with his message. So when the word is open and the church is gathered... It's my hope that you would receive these words as they are intended, as God's words. It's my prayer that you enter into this time of worship, desiring to hear from God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You see, messengers of the King are to preach Christ. Messengers of the King promote the truth of His Word. Messengers of the king stand in awe of the one that they proclaim and they hold fast to the pattern and sound teaching of the word. And when the church gathers around the word of God, we are refreshed and we're reminded and we're stirred to lift high the name of Jesus. And that's no small task in the midst of a world that we live in, friends, that largely opposes Christ, opposes Christianity, Opposes, yes, even the church herself. And what she's to stand for. What the word says she stands for and represents. You read verse 19. And you can understand the immediate questions that come to mind for the immediate listener. The trepidation of the Jew entering the holiest. Fear. Awe. Reverence. They now needed to be assured that entering into the holiest was a possibility because of what Jesus accomplished on their behalf. Praise God, the text doesn't advocate we enter on our own merit or strength. The text shows us the truth in Christ 
explaining how it is that we can now enter boldly. Look at the text. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, here's the first preposition, by the blood of Jesus. We have boldness to enter the holiest, the writer says, by the blood of Jesus. Earlier in chapter 10, the writer explained how the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. He says it's not possible. But he goes on to say that Jesus' one-time sacrifice, his blood shed, brought complete atonement for our sins. The cup that we drank from today in the Lord's Supper is a remembrance meal celebrating his blood of the new covenant which secures the forgiveness of our sins once and for all. It's glorious news. The basis for obeying instructions found in verses 22 through 25 is predicated on this gospel truth that the blood of Jesus cleanses and purifies us and is the means by which we draw near to God. Ephesians 2.13 says that we who once were far away have been brought near what? How? By the blood. By the blood of Jesus. That's how we are brought near. The text says that we have boldness available now to enter the holiness. The picture brings to mind the priest coming before the mercy seat into the very presence of God. You remember what was on the other side of the curtain, don't you? The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the angels at the top of the seat, and the contents inside the Ark. But the presence, the very presence of God was behind the curtain. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says that as living stones, we are in Christ being built up a spiritual house. A, listen to this, a holy priesthood that's who we are in Christ and here's the purpose Peter says to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ a few verses later in 1 Peter 2 verse 9 he says that you are a chosen people a royal priesthood you are a priesthood of the king That's who you are. You see, we have access to enter into the holiest by means of the blood of Jesus. Listen, boldness is to be characteristic of the righteous. If you are righteous and consider yourself to be righteous in Christ here today, that is to be characteristic of who you are. How, How do I know that? The Bible tells me. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says that that the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are what? Bold as a, remember the animal? A lion, yes. The righteous are bold as a lion. Now there's a certain picture and image that comes to mind with that proverb, isn't there? Bold as a lion. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 20. Here's the second preposition or prepositional phrase. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. So the boldness that we have to enter into the holiest, the very presence of God, 
is established by means of his blood, accessed directly through this new and living way inaugurated for us. The word here in the text, new, is a word that I want to put forth to you. I know it seems like such a simple word, but really this, this word, the rendering, the idea behind this word, it's the only use of this word in the New Testament for new. Uh, now, new is found in the English translation on several occasions, but the actual original word translated new here in the text, this is the only time in the New Testament where we see this word. It has in mind the idea of freshly slain or freshly Slaughtered brings another great vivid picture to mind, doesn't it? Freshly slaughtered. MacArthur writing about this, he says, it seems contradictory that the freshly slaughtered way would also be the living way. Think about that. But Jesus' death conquered death and gives life. His death is the only way to life that is everlasting. You see, this new and living way is the path that he consecrated. That's what the text says. He consecrated this way. In other words, he set it apart. He inaugurated it. He opened it up for us. I want you to think forerunner. I want you to think captain of our salvation. He went before us. He consecrated this way. Leading the way. Making it possible now for us to enter into his presence as well. You see, this access had been blocked for a time, hadn't it? Blocked by this curtain. There's a curtain veil in the temple symbolizing off-limits entry. Off limits. Don't miss that he opens this way not for himself, but for us. He opens it for us. You know, there's some, I had a conversation this week with someone who was talking about and kept having he had some questions. And it was a really interesting conversation, and long and short of it was. Some questions he had about God and some things that maybe he was submitting and putting forward about God not being fair about this or this or it didn't make sense that God would do this. And every time he would say that, it, just, it made me cringe because, you see, when we start questioning things about God, we forget certain things like this truth we're talking about here this morning. He consecrated a way for us. He's given to us all that we need and then some. He's given to us more than we could ever ask or imagine. And we have the audacity to complain about things and say that God's not fair. Friends, he's given to us the greatest gift he could ever give, and that is his son, Jesus. He's consecrated a way for us. And it's made available, notice this, through the veil that is his flesh. Now, the writer here is pointing to the old covenant structure of the veil, which they would have been very familiar with, okay? And applying that to the flesh of Christ. The veil was torn, providing access to God. Christ's body was broken. It's the freshly slaughtered way that secures the everlasting living way. 
So the first foundational principle that's mentioned here in the text for why we're to obey the instructions forthcoming in 22 through 25, the first principle is defined as we now have boldness to enter into the holiest and we do so by two means. We do so by means of Jesus' shed blood and we do so by the new and living way which he made available. He consecrated, he opened, he inaugurated for us. One other foundational principle mentioned in the text. Remember for change and transition to take effect, God's word is providing a framework here in which to receive the instructions which are coming. Exhortations that are intended for the listener to live out. Okay? So principle number two, having a high priest over the house of God. Look at verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God. Having boldness, having a high priest over the house of God. And and it's right here where I think it's helpful for us to turn backwards a couple pages in Hebrews to chapter 3 in verse 5 and 6. There he's talking about Moses and and Christ. And he says in verse 5, Moses indeed was faithful. Uh, Listen to what it says. He was faithful in all his, God's house. He was faithful in all his house as a, what was his role? A servant, right? For a testimony of those things which would be spoken of afterward. But Christ... Notice the difference between Moses and Christ put forward here. Christ as a son, not a servant, but a son over his own house. You see the difference between Moses and Christ? A son over his own house. So once again, we look at these two foundational principles and we see First of all, we have boldness to enter the holiest. We have a high priest over the house of God. Hebrews 2.17 says that Jesus is deemed our merciful and faithful high priest. Hebrews 4.14, Jesus is described as our great high priest who passed through the heavens. Remember, he consecrated the way. He passed through the heavens. He's high priest over the house of God. So what's interesting, when you look at Hebrews 3, and you read Hebrews 3, 5, and 6, and then you read Hebrews 10, verse 21, we see that Jesus is indeed high priest over his own house. And we see in here in in verse 21 of chapter 10 that he's high priest over the house of God. Whoa. Can we pull those together? Or does one have to be true and the other not true? See, this is, this is good to be able to do this and piece scriptures together and see that when we put them together, we see that the high priest over God's house is Christ himself. Christ's house is God's house. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Is he not? Isn't that what the scripture says? So foundational principle number two, according to the text, is helpful in what way? What difference does it make that Jesus is high priest over the house of God? The boldness and the confidence to enter the holiest is predicated upon the one presiding. You see, my confidence and boldness is predicated not simply on the what, but the who. I'm not solely relying upon the gospel truths, but making sure that these truths are firmly linked together with Christ and who he is. We've got to be clear on who Jesus is. 
My confidence to enter is predicated on who he is. Let me ask you a few questions. Perhaps you've asked these questions or you know of others who've asked these questions. Is he able, talking of Christ, is he able to preside over this house? Well, the word says he's able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. Is he worthy to preside over this house? The Bible says that in the book of Revelation, there's a song going on and it goes something like, Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Can he be trusted in such a role? Friends, he laid down his life for you. Jesus, of Jesus, the father said, this is my son. Listen to him. If we, if we read the, the, the gospels, we come to see that, that Jesus alone has God's seal of recommendation and approval. I believe he can be trusted. Well, will he remain faithful? as high priest over God's house. The Bible says even when we are faithless, he is faithful. A little bit later, we're going to see that he is faithful. He who promised is faithful. You know, and I was thinking about this, and I was thinking how uh, you, you can talk to your children parents. Some of you can relate to this in particular, and some of your children can relate to this too from the learning aspect some of you children uh, like to ride bikes and you, you learn how to ride bike possibly by having dad and mom help you or another sibling, maybe an older sibling helped you. But talking to the children about how to ride a bike is one level. It, it makes a great deal of difference when dad or mom or an older sibling are coming alongside you when you're taking those first pedals on the bike. You see... As you're learning, you're pushing the wheels and your thought process is, oh, I hope I don't fall. And all the while, you're, you're, you're looking down at your feet and, and you're, you're struggling with staying on that bike. Dad or mom's right there and, and they're helping you. Older siblings there and they're helping you. And how are they helping you? They are holding that bike steady. They're holding it steady. And after a while, you're on the bike and you think, wow, I'm making some good progress. All the while... You really don't have an idea and a concept that most of the reason that you're still going has everything to do with that person keeping your bike stable. Someone else is keeping you upright. You know, I was thinking about this and I, I, was, I was thinking about Jesus as high priest over the house of God how he provides us with this great measure of stability. He provides us with a great measure of assurance and hope. You see, the one who saved me is also the one who keeps me. The one who saved me is also the one who is for me and not against me. Read Romans 8, it tells us that very thing. If God is for us, who can be against us? The one who saved me is also the one who awaits me when this life is over. Praise God. You see, I'm not entering into a place of unfamiliarity in terms of not knowing anyone when I get there. Have you ever done something or gone somewhere simply because you were unfamiliar with who was going to be there? Anybody? Hey, you didn't really know anybody was going to be there, so I'm not going to go to this. 
See, we like to know who's going to be there. And we like to know that the people who are going to be there are people we like to spend time with. Truth be told, I'm saying it so you don't have to say it. We like that. Listen, Jesus is going to be presiding as high priest over God's house when you arrive. If you're not familiar, this is so important. If you're not familiar with him now, and you really don't care to be in his presence here on earth, how is it that you will ever enjoy heaven? How? If all that thrills your soul is not Jesus today, how is it that you will just all of a sudden be thrilled when you see him in that day? You see, there there will be nothing thrilling, truth be told, for, for those being judged who have chosen to live this life apart from Jesus. What awaits is what we will come to in a few weeks in verse 27, a certain fearful expectation of judgment. You see, the wrath of God, which Jesus died to satisfy on your behalf, if you aren't very much interested in his love and his grace that's been poured out on your behalf, and your life is spent distancing yourself from God, doubting him on an ongoing basis, or deliberately holding out on him, the wrath of God, which Jesus already took upon himself, that wrath of God, according to the Bible, John 3.36, now abides on you. Perhaps this explains, in part, why the three exhortations that follow in 22 through 25 are not obeyed a whole lot today. Listen, familiarity with the gospel truths will not secure your eternal salvation with Jesus in heaven. Familiarity. Knowing about the gospel truths doesn't save you one bit, knowing about them. In fact, one who is familiar with and knows about the gospel truths and yet fails to embrace them by faith, this one is no different than the man that's described in Romans 2 who in accordance with his hardness and impenitent heart, he is treasuring up for himself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 2 verse 5. You know, there are a lot of folks today that are asking a similar question that Pilate asked back in John 18. What is truth? Maybe they don't ask it exactly that way, but they question truth, that there is a truth. Jesus, before going to the cross, he prayed to the Father that he would sanctify his followers by what? By the truth. He then went on to define the truth. He didn't leave us hanging. He said, your word is truth. God's word is truth. Friends, do you operate and live that way today? As though God's word is true. You see, it ought then not come as a surprise that the judgment of God is going to be according to God's truth. Romans 2, verse 2. Our minds are quick, I think, to... Uh, to go to the saints who've gone before us 
and the joy that we're going to have in being reunited with them in heaven. Yes, that would be wonderful. But Jesus as high priest over the house of God reminds me that one day in the text, it's coming next week at the end of 25. It speaks more about this day that's coming closer. One day I will get to see him face to face. Now I know in part, but then entering into the very presence of God, seeing Jesus in all his glory. Listen, you want Jesus to be high priest over God's house. You want him to be the high priest. You see, God has appointed this Jesus to be priest forever. Jesus is the mediator. He's also the guarantor of the new covenant, which is far better than the old covenant. And with Jesus as high priest over God's house, you need to understand one other thing. Jesus is the one God has appointed as the judge on the last day. He will judge man by what? By the standard of righteousness. And you obtain righteousness, the Bible says, only through faith by means of the freshly slaughtered way of Christ at the cross. See, friends, these are gospel handles to take in, gospel truths to be grounded in, gospel anchors necessary for gospel living. And because Jesus shed his blood and he died a cruel death at the cross, you now have been provided access to the throne room of God, into the very holy of holies. You've been granted the overflowing spiritual blessings of heaven. Ephesians 1 comes to mind. Through the sacrifice of Christ, the way has been provided. Jesus alone is the way into the holiest. And what I just said is spurned by many in our world today. Jesus alone is the way into the holiest. The basis upon which we are exhorted to obey God's instructions in 22 through 25 comes in verses 19 through 21 and consists of two foundational principles. One, we have boldness now to enter the holiest. And two, we have a high priest mediating over the house, ruling over the house of God. We're going to pick up next week looking at the three exhortations in verses 22 through 25. And there the writer is is moving on to instruct the listener on how to live life, what kind of life ought to be lived. Remember, there's a need for instruction. And he's going to give them in 22 to 25, give them how now life should be lived under the new covenant as a servant in the house of God. As a preface to living the gospel, though, I wanted to take this week to make sure we understood rightly the foundations upon which gospel living takes place. You see, I realize that today's reader may not hold the same fears of entering the holiest like first century Jew did. I realize that. In fact, I wrote up on the board this week. I I like to do a lot of visual. I write up on the board in my office. What's the comparison? What's the equivalent of the holiest for today? I I, I wanted to be thinking about those thoughts because I realize as you sit in the chair, that same idea doesn't apply to you. You're 2,000 years removed from it. That being said, it's also important you know how it applied to the first century listener, that you know why in part this was written. Having grown up in the new covenant, on the other side of the cross, you view the holiest not as a place per se, but the very presence of God. The New Testament speaks of the priesthood of believers 
Each one working together, connected together to the head who is Christ. And for those in Christ, we look forward to being with Jesus, to entering into our heavenly home, not built with hands, spending all eternity with the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We look forward to that. And so I ask the question, in what manner is boldness still needed today as a follower of Jesus? In what manner is boldness still needed today as a follower of Jesus? We have boldness to enter the holiest, yes, and we delight in that. But if boldness is deemed this clear, direct communication in the face of potential opposition, how are we doing at being bold, church? As a Christian, do we oftentimes tiptoe around our words? Uh, are, are we politically correct with our words, knowing that certain God speak is off limits in certain places? Has our tongue been tied for the cause of Christ because for so long we've been accustomed to thinking that godliness is strictly forbidden in this particular place? Listen, God has called His children to be bold as lions. We now have, through the death of Christ, boldness to enter the holiest and we can say, as the Apostle Paul said in the book of Philippians, and arrive, this, is, this is where the boldness comes into play, I believe, being bold as a lion. Paul, Paul got to a point in his life where he was able to say, through the Spirit working in him, for to me to live is what? Christ. To die is what? Gain. He's hard-pressed between the two. Do we live in that kind of tension? Where if we live and we keep on living, it's going to be for the benefit and edification of our brother and sister, those in the world who need to hear the, hear the gospel truth. Or if we die, or we say, okay, I get to be with Jesus now. I, I always talk to the children a lot. You know, as I'm getting older, like tease me, I'm getting older. I am, I'm getting older, mortal, feeling the effects of it. But I always tell them, I'm getting closer to Jesus. I'm getting closer to Jesus. I'm looking forward to that time. I hope you are too. Can you say, with all honesty, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Do you trust this Jesus with your life or not? Do you think that he's able to help you through? Is his cause and his kingdom and his glory not worth it? We have boldness to enter the holiest. We have a high priest presiding over the house of God. Two foundational truths to just put in our pocket, hide in our heart as we look now to live out the gospel each day of our life. And next week, he's going to teach us some more. He's going to give us some more instruction on how to actually live that out under the new covenant. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good word. And I thank you for giving to us uh, some, some foundational principles that we can build this gospel upon we can have a framework in which to live out the gospel truth. And so, Lord, as we uh, take in what you've uh, spoken today through your word, I pray, Lord, it would be a preparation in many regards to what you will be teaching us next week as you show us now what living ought to be like and what living ought to look like under the new covenant through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray you'd be pleased with our lives and that we as your children would be bold as lions. We would be bold to enter in to that which you've already made possible, your presence. You've given to us and granted to us access to come anytime. 
And so, Father, we thank you for your goodness in that regard. And we thank you, Lord, that you've told us in your word that you have given to us Christ as our great high priest who presides over the house of God. What a comforting, reassuring stability. It's all there, Lord, for us to think through. You are the one in charge. You are the one over all. And we're here for but just the time. And we can know that as we are living, as you've called us to live here, we have something wonderful, amazing, marvelous, spectacular to look forward to. May we live now in light of what is yet to come. May we be set on heavenly-minded things even now, looking forward to seeing Jesus. Oh, Father, thank you. Give us the strength, fortitude, the energy, the courage to go, to do what you've called us to do. You've prepared works for us in advance that we should walk in them. May we walk in them now understanding we have boldness to enter into the holiest and that you are the one presiding over the house of God. Lord, there's nothing here that can keep us from doing what, what you've called us to do. May we not be fearful in that way to speak or to act on your behalf. We thank you that your presence goes with us now through your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.